I knew at that moment, because my partner had been diagnosed only a few weeks before me, I knew that it was an easy treatable illness. I would take my tablets. I could live a normal life. So far, the most difficult part about my diagnosis has been the stigma, it's the discrimination, it's the misinformation. Welcome to another episode of the HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing podcast. My name is Eamon Keogh. Today we are talking about HIV, which is probably one of the best known infections, but how much do we really understand about it? With the strides made in treatment, thankfully HIV is now a controllable infection. People are able to continue with their lives while successfully maintaining relationships and their careers. Joining me to discuss this, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Fiona Lyons, HSE Clinical Lead, the Sexual Health and Crisis Pregnancy Program, and consultant in genitourinary medicine at St. James's Hospital, Dublin, and Aoife Commons, a practicing nurse working in Galway and living with HIV. You're both very welcome. Thanks, Aidan. So, Fiona, can I ask you to give us a sense of where we are now with HIV in Ireland? We've come a long way in terms of getting to grips with this infection, really, haven't we? We have indeed, Eamon. Yeah. And uh, I suppose the three things to say, we have the tools in our kit medication box now such that people who are living with HIV can expect a normal life expectancy once they get on treatment early enough. They won't transmit HIV to their sexual partners. And we can use the medication we have in our medication box to prevent new infections. So they are huge strides made in a very short time space, given that HIV was first described in the early 80s. What we need to do is make sure that everybody who would benefit from these interventions has access to these interventions. Very good. And I suppose looking at the latest report from the Health Protection Surveillance Centre, and um, this shows the rate of first-time HIV diagnosis is down by I think it's 16% in 2022. Um, that's really good news, isn't it? It is good news. And um, that's a 16% drop in the first time HIV diagnoses from, um, in 2022 compared to pre-pandemic in 2019. Right. And I suppose what first-time diagnosis means in this is people for whom their HIV infection was the first recorded for them, that they didn't have a known HIV infection elsewhere, diagnosed abroad, that this is the first time and potentially people who we could have prevented their infections or we should be trying to prevent these infections. So this data tells us that the interventions that we've put in place in the last number of years by way of combination HIV and prevention, HIV prevention, which includes access to HIV testing, access to condoms, access to treatment and the use of HIV medication to prevent new infections, specifically pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis are beginning to work. I'd like it to see it even greater, but we are beginning to see an impact, which is really great. Very good. Can I ask you, is there anything in the figures that cause you concern? Yeah, and this is a very important message for any health and care professionals listening in today. Unfortunately, in the first time diagnoses reported in 2022, still 45% of them, so that's nearly one in two people who were newly diagnosed with HIV, had a late infection, what we call a late infection by the time they were diagnosed. 
And that suggests that there may have been missed opportunities for them to avail of testing or be offered testing. And okay. so we need to try and make, reduce the proportion of people who have late diagnoses at the time of their diagnosis. So you mean if they... Their HIV may for... have progressed. They may have been... We, if we had had an opportunity to get in earlier, their outcomes would be better. And we we define that based on how well their immune system is yeah. um, with the CD4 count, which is one of the, the blood tests we do at the very beginning when somebody comes to see us. So just, I suppose, in terms of treatment, early treatment is key. Oh, early treatment is key, which is why we really must remember to make sure that people who would benefit from having a HIV test, in my view, that's everybody, because we all have a HIV status, yeah. that they have opportunities and different opportunities for availing of testing. And for us as health and care professionals, that we normalise HIV testing and become much more comfortable with offering this intervention to people. I'm going to talk to you about treatments in a little while, but first I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that early intervention and why it's so important for people to come forward. Well, I suppose... We know that, unfortunately, the virus left to its own devices will attack the immune system. And when our immune systems are attacked, we're open to infection. And some of that can be irreversible. So what we want to try and prevent is people becoming unwell with HIV so that they don't present with a condition that says to us, oh, this person's immune system is really unwell. Because the further they've gone down that road of, of letting the virus do its its job, I suppose, then the more difficult it can be to get them back. So we want to get in as early as possible um, because then the best people will benefit from the best outcomes then and have a normal life expectancy. I suppose some people may feel uncomfortable or scared to come forward as well or to talk about it really. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one thing that unfortunately we still see a significant amount of is HIV-related stigma, um, both in the general population and within health and care, healthcare settings. And I think that that's something that if we hear, if, if you are somebody who is living with HIV or feels you may be at risk of HIV and you hear a derogatory, you know, dialogue in the community or in your in your work environment, then that's may stop you saying, oh, well, people will think ill of me because I may be at risk of this infection or because I, in fact, have this infection. Or this infection really doesn't care who it infects. It's just looking for somebody to do its, quote, job. Aoife, I just, I might come to you now and that you're a nurse in Galway. You just finished a night shift, I have to say. So really, really appreciate you joining us this morning on this podcast. Thank you so much. But you're living a full life with uh, having been diagnosed with HIV. But can I just take you back to when you were first diagnosed and just talking about that, I suppose, that sense of being overwhelmed or, or just dealing with it. Would you mind sharing just how you felt? Of course. Getting diagnosed was actually quite difficult for me. I had to present to the emergency room three times before I got diagnosed. They just kind of weren't taking me seriously, um, which was incredibly frustrating because I was 90% sure I had HIV because my partner had been diagnosed and I had gone on post-exposure prophylaxis, which is what um, Fiona had mentioned, it's PEP. And I was on that for about a month and then they retested me and they said, look, you're negative. The PEP worked. You don't have HIV. And a week later, I was really, really unwell. So I presented to emergency and I said, look, I'm not feeling great. I have all these symptoms and they tested my bloods and they're like, oh yeah, your, your liver function tests are all off and your platelets and your white cells are low. It looks like you've got some sort of a virus. And I said, well, look, I've been recently exposed to HIV. And the doctor said, no, no, that's definitely not what this is. Come back next week and get your bloods retested, but we won't test you for HIV today. And I thought that was a bit unusual because I know it's not a difficult blood test. It's just, you just take the blood and you send it. It's not, it's not a difficult test to do. And then I came back again two days later, 
Symptoms were worse, broke out in a rash, very evident symptoms of a HIV seroconversion. And I said it to the consultant again, that I'd been recently exposed to HIV. Maybe the PEP didn't work. She said, no, 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 this is definitely not what's happening. But we do think you have uh, a malignancy in your spine. And we think you actually, this could be actually cancer. So we want to do an outpatient MRI and then come back when your MRI results are back. So sent me home again, wouldn't test me for HIV. And then I went in two days later again, and I said, I'm not leaving until I get a blood test for HIV and I want an inpatient MRI because there's something really wrong with me because I was so unwell. And then the next day they finally came in and they said, oh yeah, no, you don't have cancer, but yes, you do have HIV. <laughs> so it was incredibly frustrating to just keep being ignored when I was 90% sure I knew that it was HIV. And it was incredibly scary to be told that, no, no, we think you actually have cancer. So when I actually got my diagnosis, I was incredibly relieved because it was, you don't have cancer. I didn't have to go through chemo and radiotherapy. And I was in Australia at the time and I was thinking, oh, I don't have to fly my parents over and I don't have to tell them this horrible news. It's, this is great. I don't have cancer. So that part of me was so relieved. Wow. I mean, to be, to be relieved, to you, I suppose it's the fear of the unknown as well, isn't it? Exactly. And a few people have said that going, wow, it's amazing to think that you were so relieved that you got HIV. <laughs> but I knew at, at that moment, because my partner had been diagnosed only a few weeks before me, I knew that it was an easy, treatable illness. I would take my tablets. I could live a normal life. So far, the most difficult part about my diagnosis has been the stigma. As Fiona said, it's that's the biggest issue. It's the stigma. It's the discrimination. It's the misinformation. So that's just the hardest part in trying to get that out there, that it's not a death sentence anymore. We might just talk about that in a second, but I just want to stay with that early intervention point at the moment. Fiona, just going back to what you were saying, I mean, Aoife's story, and, and Aoife, you're, you're a healthcare professional, so I'm sure you went in and you were describing your symptoms, but I mean, for it to be missed three times that's yeah. staggering really isn't it I, I know um it's kind of it's kind of shocking and fair play to Aoife for successfully advocating herself to getting a HIV test um I don't think anybody should have to do that and I mean I've listened to Aoife's story I've heard Aoife speak before about this and I still don't really understand how that happened um unfortunately nothing is 100% so whilst post-exposure prophylaxis will reduce the risk when somebody presents with symptoms like that of a rash, recent exposure to HIV and symptoms that we put down to, quote, viral infection, we'll consider if somebody has been exposed to HIV, just offer them a HIV test. As Aoife said, it's not a complicated thing to do. And it could have saved Aoife a lot of having to advocate for herself in that way. And, you know, I, I'd be scared for people who weren't able to do that. Like, so if Aoife, Aoife clearly stood up for herself and got and got what she needed to get done, well, what about people who, who don't feel able to do that, you know, and they're coming into health services and may not have had the HIV diagnosis? And, and with time, Aoife's symptoms may have resolved. So everyone said, okay, that's all grand, you know, move on. But then, you know, if Aoife's HIV hadn't been diagnosed early at that stage, then she may not have had the benefits of early treatment. Because it may have taken in somebody else, somebody else may have been later before they were diagnosed. And can I ask, I suppose this is a question for you both, really, but do you think just from the different areas you worked, because I don't want to put you on the spot in terms of one specific area you're working in, but I mean, do you think that's a, an exceptional case or do you think there are cases like that where it's just hard to get listened to, really, I suppose? 
it does happen now and again. This was in Sydney. And I genuinely think if I had come into the emergency department in the hospital where I work at, that wouldn't have happened. And I work in an acute medical unit and we are very good for sending off HIV tests there. So I genuinely don't think it would have happened in my hospital. But I have heard of GPs where a girl went to her GP and said, I'd like to get a full you know, sexual health screen in HIV. And he said, why would you need a HIV test? Did you sleep with a bisexual man? So there is issues, definitely. But as I said, this hospital was in Sydney and I genuinely don't know why they wouldn't test me because as, as Fiona said, like I was presenting with common symptoms. I was literally screaming in their face. I think I have HIV. So I don't know why that happened. It was very unusual. And it was worrying because I did advocate for myself. And I knew as a nurse that, that these were not usual symptoms. I knew something was wrong. But I can't imagine how difficult it must have been for any other female that went in without a nursing background and a health background trying to get tested. And then, as you said, I, I would have eventually have stopped having those early on symptoms. And I would have just, my symptoms would have settled, but I would have been getting sicker and sicker. And my, you know, my immune system would have been breaking down slowly over time. And who knows how long it would have been till I got an actual diagnosis if I hadn't fought for that. So it is a bit concerning. And just on that, where can people get more information on the supports available? Just if they want to read more about it or they're, they're feeling unwell. There's really good information on sexualwellbeing.ie, um, which is the Sexual Health and Crisis Pregnancy Programme website. There's good information there about um, HIV and other infections. HIV Ireland and other NGO groups offer really good support for people who have questions about HIV. And sometimes people, I mean, people often say to me, you know, God, this, is, this might be a stupid question. There's no such thing as a stupid question. If you're not sure of something, you need to uh, please come forward and ask um, because there are lots of information out there. For people newly diagnosed, with HIV. I don't know what you'd agree with this, Aoife, but there can be a lot of scary stuff out there. And an AIDS map is a really good resource, I think, for people who want to find more information. It's actually really good for healthcare professionals as well, because the information is so good. Um, and it's it's very accessible for people and for, uh, for doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals. So I'd say sexualwellbeing.ie, HIV Ireland and other NGO organisations. And aidsmap.com is a really good res resource for people living with HIV. Is anything else, Aoife, you'd think? No, I think that was great. Like, as you said, it can be a bit overwhelming. You Google can be, you get so much information. So I think going to a, directly to a source and kind of going on a reputable website is definitely better than just going sifting through Google because it can be just information overload. Yeah. And, and, there's, and misinformation overload. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I, a lot of misinformation. Um, so again, just I suppose the message really go to a trusted source. Aoife, you mentioned stigma earlier and um, I suppose the stigma associated with, with HIV. Can we talk a little bit more about that? It's quite prominent in healthcare, which is kind of concerning because I think for me, you always kind of assume that you're going to trust healthcare the most, that they're going to know the most, that they're not going to be the ones that are going to have misinformation and stigma. So that was a real eye opener for me when I got diagnosed. I guess I never really had a huge amount of HIV positive patients before I was diagnosed. So I never really noticed any issues, but it wasn't until afterwards where I had all this information and I was, I knew so much about my own diagnosis and that I can't pass it on and that I'm not a risk. And, you know, my meds keep me, you know, from being immunocompromised to then hearing doctors say, well, sure, you're immunocompromised now, or, you know, you're a risk and things like that it was really frustrating and it's it's like a daily battle to just have to just be 
get and listen to and and you're constantly arguing <laughs> with people. I went to a dentist there a couple of months ago in Galway. And when I was doing the check-in form, because I'd never been there before, I'd do like a pre-health assessment. And one of their questions was, have you ever been exposed to the AIDS virus? And I just got so incredibly angry. I probably got too angry, but it was just, it was just so frustrating for me because I was, I went up to the dentist and I said, you are a healthcare professional. You know, AIDS is not a virus. AIDS is in a complication of untreated HIV. The fact that you have this on your form is reinforcing the belief that AIDS and HIV are the same thing. It's nearly reinforcing the fear mongering. I think that a lot of people, my parents' age and my grandparents' age, still believe that AIDS and HIV are this really horrible disease. So I have to lecture him about his own practice, naming AIDS as a virus. And I just think that that's so necessary. This In this day and age, it's 2023, we shouldn't be doing this. Why are we self-advocating? We shouldn't have to. It's just so, so frustrating. But luckily enough, he was very appreciative of my feedback (laughs) and he actually changed the forms. So the forms are now updated in his clinic. (laughs) You're a one woman advocate, I have to say. (laughs) I'm just a bit of a tyrant. I just, I just, when I get going, I can't stop. (laughs) Yeah. Talking about stigma again for a minute, um, we recently recorded an episode around obesity and the stigma associated with that. And just talking to one of the patients on that podcast, she was just describing the just the battle of, I suppose, first of all, the battle with yourself in terms of just reconciling how you are and how you feel. And then the battle with everybody at society, really, and just I suppose the stigma associated with that, and and again, it, in this instance, it sounds like that as well. Every nearly every corner you turn in terms of a health setting is supposed to be a safe place, a non judgmental place, but that's not the reality in some in some cases. Yeah, um, I mean, if you look at the like the I, I googled, I actually I not didn't Google actually I looked up in a dictionary what stigma meant, and it means like a a, a mark. So people have a mark; they're set to to stigmatize. Like it's a very the a very old definition comes from it being you mark somebody; they're branded as something. I mean, show me the perfect person who can say, "Well, I'm perfect," so I can decide that I'm going to stigmatize against somebody because they've got X, Y, or Z. I mean, like as Aoife said, you know, the virus doesn't care who it's going to infect, and even the question. On, on the form about exposed to the AIDS virus. I mean, whatever, even if it said exposed to HIV, we're not very good at doing that. And we have to recognise our risk, but this virus doesn't care who it infects. So without causing fear for people, if you solely rely on just trying to calculate your, your inverted commas risk, you may not get it right. So availing of a HIV test is a good thing to do. And Anifa talked about being frustrated about having to self-advocate. I commend Aoife from the highest possible place I can for her coming forward to do this very important service for health and care professionals, which she's one of, and also for people living with HIV. Because I've been working in this area of medicine since the early 90s, and I feel a, a sense of responsibility and duty for, to advocate for the people in, in my care who are living with HIV. But I'm really delighted to be joined now by people like Aoife and hopefully the need for self-advocacy or your care advocacy to still exist will be gone in a number of years time. But we're, so I'm delighted that it's a team, a team approach now. And Fiona, just on that, can I just take you back, I suppose, you've, as you said, you've been working in this area for a while, but when you started to now, do you feel things have moved on? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, in terms of the medicine, like we've got the, the medicines are sorted. I mean, and, and 
And in fairness, it was the people it was the people who were affected most by the virus in the beginning who marched down on the NIH and said, you've got to do something about this. And the investment made in understanding this virus and understanding how to manage it was enormous. And it's the speed with which it's it's come to our current day where people can live normal lives and has been amazing. And as a, a nerdy scientist, it's been really nice to be part of that journey. So we're when back in the day, um, I remember as a very junior doctor, having looking after people who you get to know really well because you were seeing them so often and then they were gone and that was really hard and I suppose then you know people would wonder like why should I even know my HIV diagnosis if there's nothing you can do for me um, whereas now it's changed so much and, and and that's what we really need to get the message across around the progress that has been made in terms of medicines is so enormous we just need to make sure that everybody who would benefit from these medicines can navigate their way in the health system is set up to ensure that they get those benefits. And I mean, not to harbour the point, but I think that early intervention piece coming forward is as soon as you feel that, you know, there's something that needs to be checked out. Uh, Aoife mentioned something about somebody that she met who had gone through GP looking for a HIV test and the GP's like, well, why do you need a HIV test? The number of people who I see in my practice who, when I when I ask them if they've previously had a HIV test, who say, well, I had bloods with my GP a couple of years ago, so I assume they did a HIV test. So we need to, I think health and care professions, we need to kind of get normalize and get over ourselves around the fear of offering HIV test because that's further stigmatizing and further potentially delaying people's opportunities to avail of interventions that can really have big impacts for their outcome for their lives. And Fiona, if I just wanted to ask you about, I mean, you had a, a personal friend who, who didn't come forward early enough, you were telling me before. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, 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 it wasn't in Ireland um, when I was working elsewhere. A colleague uh, I was working part of an MDT where we were looking after primarily women living with HIV. Many of them were pregnant and many came from very, very challenging social circumstances with real risk of um, domestic violence and abandonment. And one of the team was living with HIV, knew their knew their HIV diagnosis, um, but was fearful of, of coming forward and presenting for treatment and used to go around from, from used to change clinic in case somebody that she knew would come to work in that clinic and and sadly she lost her life a number of years ago to HIV and I personally reflect and go was there anything about how I interacted or anything that I said to any of my patients that she picked up on and said Jesus, there's no way I can let Fiona know I have HIV. Um, and that's why we need to be really, really careful with the language that we use and why it's so important that people like Aoife tell their story, which is pretty amazing. And Aoife, would you like to just, I suppose, going back to the stigma piece as well, would you have any other examples? Even I know a lot of people reach out to you as well, but just to share with us. Personally, a really big turning point for me was I was already planning on coming out about my diagnosis. I was kind of in the, in talks with Robbie and Veda, who are two people who have a podcast for people living with HIV in Ireland and for anyone of people from overseas have actually gone on their podcast as well. So I was kind of already in the talks of doing that podcast when a colleague of mine was sitting in the drug room with me um, or the tea room, sorry. And she said, oh, did you hear about this girl that was needle sticking in some pub in Galway it's this new rumor that's going around I've heard it from four different people and it's absolutely grown legs this rumor but anyways apparently this girl got a needle stick at the back of her arm and woke up the next morning with a big bruise on her arm and she 
she'd obviously been intoxicated after being stuck with the needle. And she woke up with a note in her pocket saying, congrats, you now have AIDS. And so she went to emergency that day. And when they tested her blood, she did have AIDS. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was like, stop this, stop this. I was like, there's so many errors in the story. I was like, <laughs> I was like, you wouldn't be able to get tested. Rewind. Yeah, I was like, you wouldn't be able to get tested the next day because it takes six weeks for HIV to show up in your blood. I was like, and secondly, she wouldn't have had AIDS. She would have been diagnosed with HIV. And then it was just, and, and then I was telling this story. She was like, geez, you know a lot. And I was like, yeah, I do. And, she, and then there was a patient that had happened to have HIV in the ward at the time. And we got to talk about him and she was like, oh yeah, you know, wouldn't you always just wear gloves when you're looking after HIV positive patient? And I said, no, well, why would you? And she was like, wouldn't you just feel like you kind of have to like, and I said, no, like explain to me why you feel that way. And she goes, it's just, it's just, I don't know. Do you not wear gloves? And I said, well, no, but I have HIV. And then it kind of went from there. And she was really kind of, it really took her back. And she was like, oh my God, I, I didn't mean anything. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I wouldn't not touch you and I'll give you a hug. And I think it just kind of, I think what when I told my story, I think it opened a lot of people's eyes that, wow, this person has been working amongst me and living a completely normal life. So they're always seeing HIV with this mindset of like dirty, diseased, and their colleague had it the whole time. So I think, I think that was powerful and it, really frustrated me and I was never angry at this colleague she was only a, a young enough nurse so I was kind of like look you know now you know better you won't make that mistake again and I never I tried never to be too angry because I'm just like okay use this t- this time to educate um instead of being angry so I just used that as a big education point <laughs> but it was it didn't it wasn't hurtful it was just like oh god it's so frustrating it's just a constant battle <laughs> I mean, there's so much in that story going from the urban myth to the... (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But there are times when people need to be angry. I mean, I I have witnessed some things uh, like it's it's more my colleagues who my trainee, my trainers rather, who've like some of my heroes in medicine did get angry back in the day when there was overt um, discrimination going on against some of the people who we were looking after together and um, really called them out and got very angry. So there is there is sometimes a role to get angry if something is really unacceptable that somebody's been refused care or, you know, their HIV is assumed to be something that they is, you know, that they're being asked, why, why how did you get that? Or they must be dirty, as Aoife said, you know, it's... Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it feels like... A lot of our attitudes are grounded yeah. in the 80s or it's yeah. like science has moved on, but we haven't. There are many faces to HIV. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose just bringing us up to the present day, really, um, obviously with World AIDS Day coming up. Fiona, can you talk to me a little bit about this and, and, and what it is, really? Yeah, so UNAIDS every year. The first, so the first World AIDS Day is the first of December. Even I were chatting about this when we're getting ready for this podcast. I'm wondering, does it need a name change? Should we call it something else other than World AIDS Day? But that's potentially another yeah, story, and I yeah. don't know if we've got the uh, imprimatur to to make that happen. But but anyway, we can try. Aoife. It's a very important day to on the first of December to reflect, to pause and reflect on the progress we've made, the lies we've lost. And to be grateful for where we can be and to recon- sort of to regroup and say, OK, look at our figures. Our epidemiological data is so important. The surveillance data is so important to say. And that's when the figures are prepared in preparation for World AIDS Day every year to say, OK, how are we doing? Where do we need to go next? Where do we need to? So pause to reflect where we came from 
remember those we lost, um, celebrate the successes we've made and regroup and say, what do we need to do next? So it's a very important day for us in, in our calendar for uh, healthcare workers um, in the area of HIV medicine and for everybody involved in HIV in any way. And Diva, do you want to come in there? Uh, I do agree with the name change. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I like about World AIDS Day and, and maybe one reason why the name change hasn't happened yet is because I suppose it, as you said, it's it's remembering everyone that did die of AIDS when there was no cure. Um, and it's a day really for just all those people that were so discriminated against, that never told anyone, that could never talk about it, that lived a really hard time back in the 80s and the 90s. So for me... When I think of World AIDS Day, I don't think about it as some as a day for me. I think about it as a day for them. And it truly is so powerful. And we rock the red ribbon. So everyone usually wears a red ribbon. And I remember um, this memory only came to me re- a few days ago when I actually was giving out red ribbons in work because all my colleagues in work are now the biggest advocates. <laughs> so I was giving out all the red ribbons. And I said, look, it makes such a difference because not about two or three months after I was diagnosed, I was going to get my COVID vaccine and one of the staff members had a red ribbon on his lapel, on his on his work lapel. And I didn't say anything to him, but I just remember thinking, ally, someone cares. And just, it really does make a huge difference. People living with HIV, just to see that support and to see that people do actually care. And not everyone thinks of us as dirty and diseased and this horrible illness. It's actually people out there who really do love and support us. So it is a very important day tomorrow. It really is an important day. Very good. Friday the 1st of December, folks. And maybe now I said we'd talk about treatments. Maybe we can move on to that if that's okay. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the types of treatment available, Fiona. Oh, how long have you got, Eamon? (laughs) 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 I suppose... um, just going reflecting a little bit on, on the journey we came from. So in the beginning, so AZT uh, retrovirus was the first uh, medicine we had to try and get HIV under control. And it was a pretty crappy medication to have to take. There were dietary restrictions associated with it. It caused a lot of side effects for doctors and nurses looking after people with HIV. We could see it in their blood tests. Their blood counts would drop and they felt awful, really bad nausea. So it was it was pretty awful medicine to take. And then we started off in the 90s when we first got our first medicines to like with one drug. And then we kind of realized actually that, that would run out of steam. We'd run out of road. And then we'd go with another medicine and you'd run out of road. And then the whole, in the mid 90s, the concept of using the medications in combination to try and target the virus at different stages of his life cycle at the same time, such that you can switch off the, uh, the the turnover, the replication of virus so well that the immune system isn't attacked in a sustained way it was kind of like a major, major breakthrough. And that was sort of 1995, 1996. So the, what's that was fabulous from a science perspective. Still, what people had to do was pretty onerous in terms of the number of tablets they had to take. And I had to take Back in the mid-90s, I had to take HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, no, the early 2000s, I had to take HIV post-exposure prophylaxis. I was taking five tablets twice a day with a fatty meal when I felt absolutely wretched. And for me, it was like, going, oh my God, I expect people I'm looking after to take these all the time. So now, fast forward to 2023, we've got an amazing array of medications available to us. Tablets, so many people can can take one tablet once a day. Um, not everybody can do that, but many people can avail of one tablet once a day and they target the virus in different ways. The beauty um, for me is that as a doctor, we're looking, working with people to get the, my 
choice for them is that there are um, choices. So we have a range of quite a lot of different options available to people, which is really great. So if something doesn't suit for one reason or another, we may have another option. And more recently, we have injectables. So um, people can avail of an injectable medication such that they don't need to take oral medication every day. And for some people living with HIV, the actual taking of the medication every day is a kick in the stomach of a reminder of their HIV. And for some people, the circumstances in which they got HIV may have been very traumatic and it's a reminder of that as well. So injectables are relatively new and and we are using them in Ireland, um, small numbers at the moment. And I think this is an area where there'll be a lot of advancement in the next number of years and hopefully eventually we'll get to a complete cure. But we're not just there yet. We're we're there to a point where people can have a normal life, but it still requires having medication. Okay, so the treatment, as we said, is very effective. Oh, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Aoife, can I ask you about U equals U and what that means, really? Yeah, so U equals U is undetectable equals untransmissible. So if I'm taking my tablets every day, the virus is so low in my blood that it becomes undetectable. So if I went to get my blood test done now, my HIV viral load would be undetectable, usually less than 20 copies per mil of blood. So... I, li- I physically cannot pass on the virus, so I'm untransmissible. So it's brilliant for people who are in relationships or want to have children. It's that sense of relief knowing I cannot give this to my partner. I cannot give this to my child. And it's just a huge breakthrough. And it's, and it's changed so many people's lives since in the last, I'd say, if you want to 10 years, maybe, U equals U. Yeah, yeah. So it started out the Swiss statement, which was not really U equals U. That was a number of years ago. But we have really good data now from clinical trials, which are very controlled and say, you know, so somebody isn't entered into a, con- a very controlled environment where people were put on medicines and people weren't put on medicines. And in the, in the group of individuals who were taking medicines early, there were no linked transmissions. By that, I mean that there were no people who were HIV negative didn't acquire HIV from their person they were living with from the person who was living with HIV on medicine and you might say oh, okay well a trial is very controlled what about the real world but we have really good data from the real world as well and um, the partner studies which Ireland participated in which showed that across all types of sexual acts if the person living with HIV was on medication and virologically suppressed they did not transmit HIV to their partner so that gives us really good data and robust evidence to say with certainty, if you're taking medication and your medication is working, you will not transmit HIV to your sexual partners. Wow, that's that's a great statement. I know, it's great to be able to say. And and a lot of our patients, I would say, had a lot of unlearning. So people I've looked after from the early days who made it through to get the advances, they've had to unlearn the, like in the day, the mantra was, you know, don't have sex without a condom, don't have sex at all, et cetera, et cetera. And moving on to even bringing it proactively bringing up with patients would you think about having a baby now for me is game changer yeah it's absolutely fantastic yeah that brings me on to talking directly really i'm conscious that a lot of healthcare professionals listen to this podcast so um again i just like to talk to you about a message for them really about i mean Eva, what you talked about initially about just the language that used or, or just listening to patients when they come and and want to talk about a possible HIV infection. Um, Is there anything you want to say? So for health and care professionals, I just say, please consider offering people HIV tests and don't make a big deal out of it. It is only, it's a simple test. Um, And everyone 
has a HIV status and everyone deserves to know their HIV status. So that's message number one. And don't be fearful of doing it. We don't need written consent. It's not a complicated thing to do. And it's not a massive intervention for an individual who's in receipt of healthcare to have. So please normalise HIV testing and please recognise circumstances when somebody presents with certain illnesses where this may be a soft marker that maybe their immune system is, has been affected by HIV and these are, they're called HIV indicator conditions. So please normalise HIV testing and please don't refer to people who are living with HIV as being HIV positive. So don't say Aoife is HIV positive. Aoife's blood test is HIV positive. Aoife is living with HIV. Aoife is a human being living with HIV. They're the two things that I would, that I'd like to say to colleagues out there. And Aoife, would you like to, to add to that? Yeah, I think for me, this is going to be a funny one, but I think if you have a, p- a patient living with HIV and they are coming to you with the facts, they probably know more than that healthcare professional. Unless it's someone who specializes in, like Fiona, in infectious diseases, a lot of the nurses and doctors on the wards, the patient probably knows more about their diagnosis, about their meds, about their illness than they do. (laughs) So listen to them. If they're telling you this is something, you know, listen to them and do not ask them how they got it. It's so inappropriate unless it's relevant to their diagnosis. If it's a new diagnosis and they're coming in and this is like they haven't found out how they have HIV yet then maybe you can ask them how they got it. But if it's just on their medical history and they're in for getting knee surgery or they're in for a tonsillectomy or they're in for something completely irrelevant, it is so inappropriate to ask, how did you get HIV? It's not relevant. It's upsetting. It can bring up trauma. And it's nearly like you're finding a way to judge them. That's how it feels. So I think that's a big one for me. Okay. And are there any other phrases that annoy you? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. Um, <laughs> um, for me, a big one is HIV and AIDS. A lot of people say, just kind of say AIDS instead of saying HIV. And they're not the same thing. They're not interchangeable. They're not interchangeable words, phrases. It's HIV now. Um, a lot of people don't, we don't, we say like late advanced HIV now. We don't even use AIDS. That word's kind of, as we said, it's nearly forgotten about now. We're not using it anymore. So it'd be really, really, really nice if people could just stop saying, oh, you have AIDS so that that would be nice. <laughs> Fiona, language really matters, doesn't it? It just, does, just... yeah. I, I mean, people will remember not necessarily the language that you used, but how it made them feel. And they will definitely remember how it made them feel. So just think twice and be careful. And just be human, basically. It's kind of what it boils down to, isn't it? And if you really want to wear a red ribbon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, can't, I, I can't tell you. I mean, Eva said that of her experience when she's getting her COVID vaccine and that the, the, the person, the nurse having the little red ribbon, like those soft markers for people who are in a heightened state of awareness or, and fear because they may be at the receiving end of discrimination or stigma. Wearing my red ribbon, wearing my rainbow lanyard, um, I actually have another one I want to get now, which is I'm jam aware, which just a minute. So for people who have who may need extra time for having a conversation that you give them just a minute. So if you have a little lanyard now, you can have a just a minute lanyard, which is really nice. But those little soft markers to make people who may be uh, feeling a little bit vulnerable safer. Yeah, we can do a lot there. So wear your wear your lanyard, your lanyards, wear your ribbon, red ribbon. Yeah, and sorry, I didn't mean to make light of it there, but no, it no. just that symbolism oh, I, is so important. Just, just it really struck me when you were where you were describing that, and, and it goes back to someone's state of mind. It's just that, it's just that nearly just the reassurance, isn't it? 
unknowingly, I was wearing a rainbow ribbon, a rainbow lanyard on, um, and this is moving into a different area, but, but just how important it is. When I was doing a TV interview a couple of years ago, and somebody texted me afterwards saying, great that you were wearing your lanyard. It was completely just, I happened, I needed my, I needed my swipe card. Um, but yeah, it's uh, those soft things, those allies, extending a, a silent hand is, is a very important gesture, I think. You're making people feel safe. And I think that's really important. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Yeah, yeah. And again, I, I know I keep saying it, but, but a healthcare setting should be a safe place for everyone, shouldn't it? Sadly, it's not always the case. It's, that's the thing. Well, maybe it'd be safer after the CIFA. Yeah, let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> and just for healthcare professionals who are looking to find out more information, where would you signpost them to? So the in terms of the HIV, where we are with with HIV in Ireland, going to the HPSC website and reading properly reading the report, which is really detailed and gives a lot of very rich information, and I, I love. Surveillance is really important. So that's so that's a really, really useful place to go. If you're seeing somebody, seeing a patient or looking after a patient with HIV queries, signposting them to a sexual wellbeing website with HIV information there. And also um, supports for them, community supports with our NGO colleagues like HIV Ireland and, and other NGOs that work in the HIV sector. Up to date if, for healthcare workers, actually doctors and nurses in the hospital, if your hospital has access to up to date, the information there is really good. And the AIDS map AIDSmap.com is a really good resource for patients that we signpost patients to, but it's really good information there if, you're, if you don't have a lot of information around HIV and HIV treatment and the advances that have been made. I just wanted to ask you as well about the, going back to, I suppose, people who may feel uncomfortable about, about talking to their healthcare professional. I mean, you introduced the new home STI testing as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So That's to, been really successful, hasn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's been good. Yeah. It, I mean, I suppose the way I look at access to HIV and STI testing is like it's a big jigsaw puzzle of things that we need to have of different opportunities that people can avail of, of testing in different ways, because as humans, we will access healthcare in different ways and we need to have some choice for, for important things like HIV and STIs. So the home STI testing service gives people the opportunity to have a HIV test and um, a, a testing for other STIs at a time and place that suits them. And it's available for free. Um, if, you, if you Google HSE home STI testing, it'll bring you to the, the sexual wellbeing website where people can order a kit and it can be delivered to the address of their choosing. Very good. We're coming to the end of this episode now, but I'd like to thank you both very much for sharing your experiences and stories um, and particularly Aoife for joining us after a, a long shift. So again, thank you so much. But before we finish, I just wanted to ask you both and um, maybe I'll start with Eve actually. But, you know, if we're to have this conversation again, I don't know, two years or four years, what further progress would you like to see? I'd like to see more people coming out and talking about their status. And it doesn't have to be public. It doesn't have to be like me where I decided to go out very publicly on my social media, but it'd be great to see people who are diagnosed and feel that they can tell their family and their friends without fear, without judgment. I've heard a lot over the years, people saying before I came out, don't tell anyone. And I really think we need to stop telling people not to tell anyone because that is feeding into the stigma. So it'd be really nice if people were just feel, I, I would really like, I would hope that people would feel more comfortable as years progress as we continue to focus on stigma, that people will start to feel more comfortable coming out about their diagnosis because it's not the end of the world. And once you start talking about it, it's so freeing. Yeah. And it's a lot to carry around with, isn't it? It's such a burden. It really is. Like, 
I thought back on to this time last year and I was just, I had this weight and I was lying to my colleagues about when I needed to go get, like if I had an appointment in the clinic, I'd have to lie and say, oh, I have a physio appointment. Or if I was lying to my friends or my family about what I was doing or, you know, it's, it's hard. It's the, the lies catch up and it's exhausting and trying to hide your meds and trying to discard of them without anyone finding them in the bin, things like small little things like that. It's, it's tiring and it's so much nicer to just not have to worry about these things. Or I work, as I said, I work nights. I take my meds at the same time every night trying to, to take my meds on the sly every night I was on shift was really hard. Now I just whip my bottle out of my, my meds and take it in front of everyone. I don't care. But it's yeah. just, it's just things, little things like that make such a huge difference to your mental health when you're free and nothing is holding you back anymore and you can just be who you are. So I just hope that people feel like they have this space to come out and I hope that people reach out more. I think a lot of people are starting to reach out online to me and to other people who are HIV positive and I think that's great it's a stepping stone so I can I hope I can continue to be that peer support until people are ready to talk about it more and the best of luck with all that Thank Aoife you. and Fiona what about yeah, you so kind of following on from what Aoife said that if we were to fast forward five years from now that we look and we can look at the HPSC data and say that we have made further progress in the reducing the number of potential preventable infections in Ireland, but also really importantly, I'm going to say it again about normalizing HIV testing such that people, the number of, of late diagnosis, the proportion of late diagnoses goes down, that people get the ability to avail of medication earlier and also that our systems don't leave our health systems don't leave people behind that everyone gets to benefit from these medication well i have to say listening to both of you i think it'll go from strength to strength so watch this space i think <laughs> um i'd like to thank fiona Lyons and Aoife commons for talking with me today and to all our listeners please continue to share our podcast with a friend colleague or family member we really appreciate your support this has been HSE Talking Health and Wellbeing. Thank you for listening.